Life with Jacobus, highlighting health, healing, and healthy lifestyles with your host, Jacobus Holloway. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is going to be exciting today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, genes and DNA, and we're going to talk about belief and biology of belief with uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton. And uh, we talk about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles. That's what Gesundheit means. It means health or good health. And uh, as we talk with the experts, give them a chance to chat about their passion, about what they are really good at. My goodness, this is really exciting. There is so much to talk about. And I think this is going to be a show today where we are absolutely mixing the physical with the emotional and the mental and the spiritual. And uh, so, as always, I'd like to remind you that as we talk about these different topics, we're not here to diagnose or treat or, or tell you exactly what to do. We're just here to inform and educate and hopefully entertain and hopefully give you a piece of the puzzle that it might be missing in your quest for better health. It is important that we realize that because there are so many questions coming up all the time. We are being sent back and forth between specialists and the more educated we become, the more passionate I'm sure we'll become about our own health and the smarter we will be in answering questions uh, from doctors or asking doctors questions. The uh, the program, let's see here. Today we have Dr. Bruce Lipton with us, and this is exciting. I've been uh, booking him for the last five or six months or so, and it's finally great the day has come that he is here. Dr. Bruce Lipton is an internationally recognized authority in bridging science and spirit. He has been a guest speaker on dozens of TV and radio shows, as well as keynote presenter for national conferences. Dr. Lipton began his scientific career as a cell biologist. He received his Ph.D. degree from the University of Virginia at Charlottesville before joining the Department of Anatomy at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine in 1973. Dr. Lipton's research on muscular dystrophy, studies employing cloned human cell stem cells, focused upon the molecular mechanisms controlling cell behavior. An experimental tissue transplantation technique developed by Dr. Lipton and colleague Dr. Ed Schulz and published in the journal Science, was subsequently employed as a novel form of human genetic engineering. In 1982, Dr. Lipton began examining the principles of quantum physics and how they might be integrated into his understanding of the cell's information processing systems. He produced breakthrough studies on the cell membrane, which revealed that this outer layer of the cell was an organic homologue of a computer chip which is the cell's equivalent of a brain. His research at Stanford University School of Medicine between 1987 and 1992 revealed that the environment operating through the membrane controlled the behavior and the physiology of the cell, turning genes on and off. His discoveries, which ran counter to the established scientific view that life is controlled by the genes, presaged presaged one of today's most important fields of study, which is the the science of epigenetics. Two major scientific publications derived from these studies defined the molecular pathways connecting the mind and body. Many subsequent papers by other researchers have since validated his concepts and ideas. And there is more I want to read. I'll read that in the next hour. Dr. Lipton wrote a great book. It's called The Biology of Belief, which is the topic of our show today. The subtitle is Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter, and miracles. Dr. Bruce Lipton, 
Thank you so much for being here. So this early on Sunday morning, because you're in California, thanks for being here. I so appreciate this. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, you're very welcome. What happened to me is I, I, I met a dear friend at a bookstore, and he had your book in his hand at the end of December or beginning of January, and said, you got to get this man on your radio program. This is fascinating. Your research is absolutely fascinating, but not only that, I think it is definitely going to change so many different sciences, including Western medicine, about what you have discovered. Well, I was out there, fortunately, uh, uh, to be a pioneer. Uh, uh, there are many, many scientists working on this, and the issue that's real interesting is that the findings uh, of this new research haven't really made its way to the public yet, and this is the big problem because uh, the public is being miseducated at this very moment uh, in regard yeah. to the belief that genes control their lives, and, and this is what's being taught at, like, from elementary school and high school and college that that we are more or less victims of our genes, that we receive a, a set of genes at, uh, at the moment of conception, and that these genes in some way act like a pattern or program device that uh, patterns the rest of our lives. So people look at their genetic heritage as a, sort of must, uh, as a control of uh, the rest of, uh, of their expression in life. It's a very unfortunate situation because genes do not control life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet the belief that they do actually creates the most of the problems that we have today. Now, obviously, we know that in medicine, uh, and through as medicine has done all this research, we have been told quite a few things that have seemed to be untrue. On the other hand, of course, science is so important because it shows us through a microscope or through any other research that things are happening in our body. And I think it is maybe part of the process. But I understand that your research is fascinating, but there are other people who have already figured out that genes were not per se the trigger of everything that was happening in the cell. Is that right? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you see, I started working on these stem cells that you're talking about yes. uh, uh, about uh, 39 years ago, which is interesting because a lot of people think stem cells are something that's relatively recent in our scientific uh, uh, understanding of life. Uh, actually, it's close to 40 years now uh, that I started cloning the stem cells. And in fact, they are very, very important cells that uh, all of us have in our bodies right now. There's yes. everyone out there that's listening has a, a population of these so-called stem cells um, throughout their body. And stem cells are the equivalent of embryonic cells that don't differentiate, that they just sort of wait there uh, in the body until they're needed. And then once needed, these cells can divide and then become uh, any tissues or cells or organs in our body and replace uh, or repair damaged uh, tissues and organs. So right. that we have built into us an ability to regenerate and repair and renew our lives with these stem cells. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the interesting thing about it is that uh, people look at these stem cells and say, well, you know, if, if these things are there and they could work, then everyone should be able to heal themselves, and they're not. So therefore, there must be some problem with the stem cells. And so this is why this is great push today uh, during research, everybody wants to do research on the stem cells. Of course, the government is trying to hold them back. Uh, and the main emphasis of the research is, well, uh, obviously, if you have stem cells, we, we want to figure out how to make them work. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's kind of a joke if you think about it, because they're sort of like suggesting that uh, essentially like God gave us stem cells, but no way to use them until the pharmaceutical company comes up with the answer. And that's like, well, this is obviously untrue. The, the question is, why uh, do stem cells exist yet? They don't appear to work in a lot of people. And the answer is, is because th- this is a, a very important feedback process between our beliefs and attitudes about life 
and the action of the cells, that the cells aren't just programmed automatically to become something or do something, but they, they work their way into the community of cells in our body and participate in that process if called upon. And yet, because most people do not believe they can heal themselves, right. they don't even have the, the intention that they can make this response. So their mind actually negates the the uh, the existence or function of the stem cells that are already in their body. So in a way, there is actually they're making a mountain out of a molehill. If you would just treat it as it is and not make such a big deal about it, then uh, science would have been a lot further. But on the other hand, uh, with uh, the research that came out that when uh, that it, that that the brain of a cell and this is something that is going to be a red line through our conversation here today. Obviously, the brain of the cell is not inside the cell, it's not in the nucleus, but it is on the outside of the cell in the membrane. And do you think this discovery that you have is going to help science to maybe get started again with an ethical stem cell research project? Well, uh, it all comes down to identifying uh, who, who's controlling this research. Now, right. uh, it's an unfortunate situation because having been in the academic world and being in a number of medical schools and doing research, uh, there's an unfortunate truth here, and that is that the research that's essentially done in this world is almost uh, the research that is sponsored or suggested by the drug companies. Mm-hmm. And, and that's because they're greatly influential in the amount of money that they wield in the system and where, you know, where that money goes. So that if, uh, if I was, uh, let's say, at a university and I was planning a research project and my project in some way supported the pharmaceutical industry's vision, I would have a far easier chance of getting money for that research than if I came out with a research proposal that suggests, oh, how about uh, thoughts and energy and beliefs and all these other things <laughs> yeah. in biology? There will be no money for that. Right. Uh, and basically, and the reason is this, is it's a self-supporting system. It will fund whatever supports the industry and will not necessarily provide money for research that, that doesn't support that, that philosophy. Yeah, you mentioned that in your book uh, where you talk about how science is, uh, you know, the, the, the spiritual part is kind of that, that is part of the church and then we are more about the facts and uh, you're trying to actually integrate these two things because of your findings. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's very, I have to make this really clear, is that the main reason I got into science as an endeavor was actually to escape and avoid uh, the, the philosophy and beliefs of the religious people. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a child, I, I mean, I, I was around a lot of people who obviously knew, knew the Bible, knew the words of the Bible, talked the good talk of the Bible, but their own lives really never reflected anything about uh, the way of life that they talked about. So I, the, the, it was just incongruous to me that that's like, well, good talk, bad life. Uh, I figured, you know what, I'm going to go into science because the truths of science seem to hold up and be manifest around the world all of the time. So therefore, rather than selecting a spiritual uh, pathway, I, I, I said, forget that stuff. Let me just go in and, and learn science because I really want to know truths in this world because it didn't sound very truthful the way I heard a lot of the spiritual religious talk. So yeah. uh, it was funny in that I went into science avoiding spirituality. <laughs> and at some point down the line, after I had established myself as a research scientist, and started to understand the nature of the cells, that it was, that spirituality was thrust upon me. I, I wasn't looking for it. I was just like all of a sudden hit on the head with a sledgehammer says, oh my God, the, the control of this cell is not inside the cell. The control comes from information from the environment. And, and it dawned on me, it says, oh my goodness, then whatever controls life is not in the biology. It plays through the biology from the outside. And it was like, 
oh, it's like apples and oranges. Uh, it was like simple understanding. It said, oh my God, the the control is not inside. It's then by not being inside, it really comes into that realm of what we would call spiritual control because the control comes from the outside. Yes, and obviously, um, it not just from the outside, but also what uh, our entire environment, including what our parents bring with them in their life and their emotions, etc. It's all going to be part of how we behave today. Oh, absolutely. And again, these are all surprising things to me in my uh, uncovering of this because uh, I started in the profession uh, and doing research and simultaneously teaching medical students the what is called the dogma, the central dogma of biology, which is the fact that life is controlled from the genes. And so there I am teaching all these students, uh, uh, you know, the conventional belief that life is controlled by genes. And yet, interesting enough, while I was doing my research on these cloned stem cells, there were experiments which involved removing the genes from the cell or destroying the genes. And the biggest surprise of all is that in the absence of the genes, many cells can live two or more months with no genes in them. And they're not just sitting there. They're doing everything they were doing before, moving around, eating, breathing, digesting their food, communicating with other cells, avoiding toxins. And what became very obvious was, well, how could all this behavior be coordinated and integrated and provide for life when there are no genes in it after teaching the fact that genes control life? So I was like, I had to face this of, you know, very real understanding is that life goes on without genes. Yes. And and so therefore, the question in my research was, well, what controls the, the behaviors of this system mm. if the genes are not involved? And that's what led me to the, to the cell membrane or the equivalent of the skin of the cell. Yes. Interesting. You apparently had did your science, but you're talking in your book about the Caribbean. You were over there, and you had some kind of an aha moment. Well, that, that's I was uh, I left the, U- the U.S. because at some point I started to realize that the research that was revealed by the cells in my experiments did not in any way support the the story I was presenting to medical students, and there was a profound difference because the story that I was uh, propagating in, in conventional medical school classrooms was a story that we are more or less victims of our genes, our heredity, that uh, you get these genes and then uh, uh, as your life unfolds and the genes unfold, our life is somewhat predetermined by these genes. And yet what the research revealed was a completely different story, that uh, that the genes were not in charge, that actually the environment was controlling the genes. So I had left the uh, conventional world because uh, I just was out of integrity. I felt like here I am teaching victimization, that people are victims. That's, yeah. that's the nature of what we're teaching. And yet the research revealed that far from that truth, that we are more or less masters. We control our biology. And so uh, when I started to recognize that uh, I was in, inappropriately teaching information that was not true, I, I left. I went to the Caribbean. I was teaching uh, in what is called an offshore medical school, which for me was a wonderful opportunity to live in paradise under palm trees and live <laughs> yeah. at the beaches and yet teach a few hours a week in the medical school. <laughs> so yes. uh, while I had that uh, leisure time, uh, I spent it uh, researching, trying to figure out how that cell is actually controlled, if we disregard the belief that genes control life, then I really have to look at the cell and say, well, what is it that controls life? And so about 1985, it was about 1.59 in the morning, I was working uh, on about 10 years of research about how the, the cell membrane, the skin of the cell, was it was converting the environmental information 
into behavior. And uh, as I, I sat there uh, and I rewrote my definition of the cell membrane, you know, the structure and function of this membrane that I've been looking at, yeah. trying to make some sense out of how does it really work, I wrote down an equation. Uh, and the, and, and the, actually, the definition I wrote was simply this. A cell membrane is a liquid crystal semiconductor with gates and channels. Mm-hmm. Well, when I wrote that in 1985, I, I was uh, it was funny because I said, my goodness, you know, I heard that exact same definition, but it wasn't in biology. And I tried to think about where did I just read that? And there on the corner of my desk was my first Macintosh. And right next to it was a, a book from Radio Shack. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a book, <laughs> Understanding Your Microprocessor, a simpleton book on how computers work. And I looked in the introduction, and there was a definition of a computer chip on page three. And the chip is a crystal semiconductor with gates and channels. And for that moment, it was like, wow, what a coincidence. The chip and the cell membrane have the exact same definition. But then within a, you know, within a second, it was sort of like a download in my brain. It said, oh my God, this is, this is not a coincidence that they, these structures are functionally equivalent. And then all of a sudden it hit me and said, oh my God, the cell is a programmable chip. And the environment mm. is the programmer. And when I started to realize that, I said, oh, my God. And the first thing I realized personally was, but my identity, uh, Bruce versus Jacobus, for example, Bruce is an environmental signal. So I'm not in my body. I'm a, I'm a signal from the outside. And it was like <gasps> immortality because if the body dies, it doesn't kill the environment. Well, that's great. That is fantastic. I want to continue with that when we come back, folks. We're going to listen to the news, a couple commercials, and we will be right back with Dr. Bruce Lipton and about his book, The Biology of Belief. So stay tuned. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. And welcome back, everybody. My guest today by phone is Dr. Bruce Lipton. Uh, so, uh, Bruce, it's great to have you with us. Now, right before the break, we were talking about cells. Yeah. And I actually like to go a little bit more into the cells because it's so easy to say cells, but there is so much going on. And, and it's so funny because I've been thinking about cells lately, and you actually, in your book, The Biology of Beliefs, are explaining how cells work. And it was right up my alley. I thought, this is just great that I did understand it. <laughs> when, when you wrote it, it was kind of a confirmation what I had believed for the last few years. And could you please explain to people a little bit about the physical presence of a cell and what, what we find in a cell? Yeah, you know what's interesting is that uh, when I was teaching in medical school, one, in the opening classes uh, to these uh, basic science students, what I had to reveal to them was a very interesting fact that we, we, we don't see, and that is this. When we look at ourselves uh, in the mirror, we see ourselves as individual single entities. And, and well, that's a nice uh, uh, take on the matter, it's absolutely uh, a misperception for this reason, is that we are actually made out of cells, and, and that every human body is actually a community of upwards to 50 trillion cells. It's the cells that are the living pieces of who we are. Yeah. So if I would shrink you down to the size of a cell and stick you inside your body, you wouldn't see yourself as a single entity. You'd see this you know, very, very large metropolis with, with 50 trillion citizens, and every yeah. cell is a singular uh, uh, expression of life. Every Every cell is the essence of life, so that we represent 
a community, when we look at ourselves, is it's not one, it's a community. And, and what's very interesting about this is that when we also look at ourselves and we look at a human and look at all the, the great uh, physiological traits and characters of a human, all the systems that are very complex, like a nervous system, reproductive system, digestive, excretory, you know, all the different systems that make us up, here's a very interesting fact. There's not one new thing that a human can do that a cell can't do. Every cell has every system that a human has. That mm. Anything you find in a human, I'll show you in a cell. And wh- why is that uh, irrelevant is because we're actually made in the image of a cell. That yes. w- we, we are a cell enlarged in a sense. Uh, why this becomes important is rather than seeing ourselves as single entities, it becomes more uh, uh, important to see the truth that we represent a community. And the relevance about the community is is just the same as any like nation on this planet. The the health of a of the whole community is really dependent on the harmony or disharmony within that community. And so when we look at human health uh, or illness, what we're really looking at is the state of the community that exists in our body. Is there harmony or disharmony in that community? What becomes very interesting in this is like any large community, there's a government which really uh, interprets what's going on in the world for the people in that community and helps them coordinate themselves. And why that becomes important in our human body is that our mind is more or less the government. So as we have thoughts going through our mind, these thoughts are, are not just sent to our own mind, they're sent to the 50 trillion cells that make up the, the, the physical body. So uh really becomes incumbent upon us to recognize that life is really based on harmony in a community. And that if our government, and our meaning our thoughts and our beliefs and attitudes, are destructive, which most of us have these very destructive thoughts because psychologists tell us 70% of the thoughts that go through our head every day are negative and redundant. That that would be the equivalent of a government that gets up every day and says, well, life is bad, everybody, <laughs> and no good, and you can't do any better, and you workers stink, and, and that's the kind of thing. Let's, that start, let's start a war. That, and, and that's exactly the kind of thinking that, that we have. As a matter of fact, it, it could get so irritating to the population inside that it could cause a number of the citizens inside your body to say, well, I, I don't even want to be in this community anymore. I, yeah. I'm pulling out of the community. Yes. But that is actually what cancer is in a body, is when cells decide, well, I'm not participating with this group. I'm out for myself. I don't really care. And why that becomes relevant is that it really makes a connection of why people get cancer. And the answer is because of the anger yes. that keeps running through their thoughts. Uh, and that anger being played out on this population at some point causes a disruption of that population. So it's interesting because let's say if we look at the globe of the world and we say, here's the United States, and we say that's a nation. But the nation isn't really the physical land. The nation, it, we'd have to get in closer and closer to that map until we got so close that you could see the people moving around. Right. And then you say, ah, yeah, it's the people that make up the nation. That's where it's really important. And the thing is, it's like looking at the human body from a distance. It's like, well, there's the nation. Yes. But the reality is, as you get closer and closer into that human body, you start to see that it's not just the physical parameters, it's the people, so to speak, or the cells yes. inside that make up that community. And then all of a sudden we start to recognize that, that life is really based on this particular community of cells, 
that the cells in our bodies are miniature humans. They are exactly as what they are. They, they are all thinking entities. They live in the world. They respond to the world. And they live in this community. And the mm. fact is, is your, are you in health or are you in disease? And what you're really looking at is, is your community in harmony or your community in disharmony? And then to recognize, well, what's responsible for that control? Yeah. And this is where I said where my conventional uh, teaching was telling everybody genes control life. Genes determine who and what you are. And this is like the, the standard mantra in the medical school is talking about the genes. And yet what I started to find, and this was over 30 years ago, uh, I started to find that, no, no, you know what? Here, here's what my research actually was. And think about it this way. Yeah. I start with a, a group of cells that were derived from one cell. I'd isolate a single cell, put it in a Petri dish, and that cell would divide and divide and divide and make a large colony of cells. All of the cells are derived from the same parent. All of the cells are genetically the equivalent of each other. Now, here's what the research was. I take one group of those cells and, and put it in a Petri dish with environmental conditions A, let's say a group of conditions, and those cells become muscle. But I take another group from the same original culture, put it into another petri dish with environment B, a different yes. set of conditions. Yes. And those cells become bone. And if I take even a third set of cells from that original dish, put it into yet another environment, environment C with different conditions, the cell would become fat cells. And basically it said this, well, well wait, they were all genetically identical. Why did some become fat, some become bone, some become muscle? And the answer is nothing because of inside the cell, but it was all due to the conditions in the culture environment that was outside the cell. So I found that the environment or the cell's response to the environment controlled the genes of the cells, not the automatic programming inside a cell. Absolutely. Uh, and so why is this relevant? Because then I go back and I say, look, I take Petri dish, I put it in an optimum growth environment, the cells grow, they flourish, they, they proliferate like crazy, they form giant colonies of cells and they're healthy. But if I take the same Petri dish and move it into a less than optimum environment, the cells don't grow very well. In fact, they may even stop growing. They'll start getting sick, they'll start dying. And, and then if I say, wait, wait, take the cells out of that bad environment, move them back into a good environment, and boom, they recover. Wow. Well, why is this relevant? And the answer is simply this. As I said, we are not single entities. In a true sense, we as people are giant Petri dishes with 50 trillion cells underneath our skin. So we're yes. skin-covered Petri dishes. And what's the relevance? And that is, if I take your Petri dish and put it in this good environment, the cells are going to grow and thrive. But if I take your skin-covered Petri dish and put it in this bad environment, it will cause the cells to get sick and die. Wow. And all of a sudden, why, why this becomes important, it says, well, it was really the environment that the cells were in that determined what happened to them. Wow. And, and then they said, well, but how does a cell know what's going on in the environment? And the answer is, well, if you're an individual cell, you can read the environment directly, just like when we walk outside, if it's cold out, we respond immediately by reflexively changing our metabolism and warming ourselves up so the body stays warm. Yes. Yet, if you walk outside your house and your skin feels that it's warm out, it, it has a completely different response. And we change the circulation and we perspire and cool ourselves off. So the control of our metabolism wasn't programmed. It was a direct response to the environment that we walked in. Now, here's, here's where the issues come from. 
when I have that giant Petri dish with 50 trillion cells called the human body, a group of the cells, a large group, about a trillion of the cells or so, create what is called the brain. And the brain's function is to read the environment, interpret what's going on, and then send information to the cells so that the cells will adjust their behavior mm-hmm. to fit the environment. So that means, while an individual cell can read the environment directly, when you're in a community of cells, the cells defer to what is called the brain, and the brain reads the environment and then sends the information to the cells to control them. So all of a sudden it says this. It says, well, the state of health of the cells is really based on the information that the brain is sending to the cells, which is an interpretation. Right. And then, and then here's here's where the whole you know where the monkey wrench gets thrown in the machine is. But what if? Just consider this possibility. What if the if the if the brain is misperceiving or distorting the environment? Uh, it's not really interpreting it correctly. It's making a misinterpretation. What impact would that have on the cells? Well, think about it this way. Let's let's say uh, we're all standing around and there's a person with anorexia and we're talking to this person with anorexia. We see them as skin and bone and almost near death. Yes. But the anorexic person looks in the mirror and to them it's like a funhouse mirror. Yes. And the relevance is what they see is a fat bloated person. Yes. And the and the reality is well if the brain sees that, that's the information it's going to send to the cells. And why is that a problem? Because if the if the cells see themselves as a flat a fat bloated person, they're going to want to lose more weight. But that's a distortion. They already are skinny. So if they lose any more weight, they actually can die. So what's the point? The point is this, is that the fate of the cells in that anorexic person uh, is actually being controlled by a distortion, that the person sees themselves inappropriately, that, that they're interpreting the environment incorrectly, and because of that, they're adjusting their biology incorrectly, and because of that, they, they are setting themselves on a course of death. And so basically it said this, is like, well, does anything have to be wrong with the body, or can the body be pathological just because of a misinterpretation? Wow. And that is the crux of the problem, is that uh, our perceptions of the world are frequently distorted, and as a result, those distortions are manifest in our biology and distort our biology and take us off a track of health. Yes, wow, fascinating. Great, great uh, lecture here, Bruce. That was, <laughs> that was awesome. Um, Carla, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, your name, please, in your life with Bruce Lipton. Yeah, my name is Ron. Hello, Ron. Yeah, uh, I have something I think kind of fits in this area. Uh, years ago, I read a book by an author named Maxwell Maltz, who was a plastic surgeon, and he wrote a book called Psycho-Cybernetics. Mm-hmm. And he discovered that when he would fix a scar on somebody's face, that immediately after they seen their new face, they still felt ugly, uh-huh. and that it took approximately 21 days for them to reprogram their mind to realize, oh my God, I'm pretty now. Mm. And uh, and I wonder how what the doctor felt about. Uh, well, this is, this is Ron. This is a is an absolutely great point for this. Is because as I said, we acquire perceptions, and even if those perceptions aren't true, if that's what we believe in our in our mind, even if it's not true in the real world, the the cells don't have a chance to pick between what's real and and the perception. They have to buy the perception. So. Uh, that person who lived their entire life created a perception uh, of themselves not being 
pretty or beautiful, whatever the case might be. Yeah. And even when that image changed, the brain is still operating from a program like a habit that looks at it and, and will distort even something that's pretty and make it look not pretty just so it conforms to the belief system. And then that belief system controls the biology. And that's why it really becomes important to recognize that the perceptions we have, uh, as you suggested, Ron, uh, are more or less programs. And uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on because this is what happens in our development, that we acquire beliefs about ourselves, and then those beliefs are what control us, not the genes. And so until you change those beliefs, you actually, the cells in your body will not know which is true or not true. All they have to do, it's not their choice. They must buy whatever the perception is that comes across the uh, uh, across that brain so that if a person is being continuously told, well, you're a sickly person or, oh, my goodness, you know, you have cancer running in your family. Uh, right. You know, let's say if you're yeah. a woman, your, your mom had cancer and your grandmom had cancer and your aunt had cancer. There's this belief that you get from growing up that, well, I am in this family and cancer is running in the family and I am, you know, susceptible to this cancer. And the fact is, you know, what's interesting if they maintain that belief, it's not real, but if they maintain it, the belief will control the biology and actually generate a cancer yes. to conform to the belief. And, and just equally as uh, valuable as this, there are people who are riddled with cancer and they're on their deathbed and everybody's counting them out saying, oh my God, this guy's got terminal cancer, they're going to die. And all of a sudden, this person with the cancer says, I'm not buying this. I'm getting <laughs> out of here and I, I'm leaving this hospital. I don't care. They pull their wires and their plugs. They get out and they start to have a life and you know what? They express what is called a spontaneous remission. And the reason why this happened was when they changed their beliefs and started to live life differently, the cells were reprogrammed from their cancer condition back into a healthy condition, and the reprogramming occurs virtually instantaneously. That's why it's called a spontaneous remission. And that's the power that this new biology reveals, is that every cell is programmable, and our mind is the programmer. Wow. Does that help, Ron? Uh, yeah, it does. And I, I, I'd like a thought on the 21-day cycle to this uh this doctor's experience, Maxwell Malt, uh, was uh, that it took approximately 21 days to reprogram your brain to uh, well, uh, uh, to realize that you were pretty or not. Well, Ron, that, that, that's actually an interesting number that so many people have selected that said that, uh, you know, to change old habits, uh, there's an old story, it takes about 21 days to do that, which is a belief in itself. And, and yes. in fact, uh, if you buy into that belief, then you actually may have to take 21 days because you yourself will believe that. Remember, the, the belief, the mind, controls the cells. If the mind says 21 days, then it's going to have to go 18, 19, 20, and then all of a sudden say, okay, now today I can make a change. Uh, and if the mind said four days, how about that? Yes. You see, that's the other thing. is that we, If we buy a belief, then that becomes the guide which runs who and what we are. That's right. Yeah, well, well. anyway, it would, be, it would be great to change it, even if it took 21 days. It would be better than, than not changing it at all. Ron, that's exactly what the whole point of this thing was, is because what I've been trying to get people to understand very clearly is this. When, 
without that belief, the other belief is, oh, your your genes control your life, and uh, you just have to, you're a victim. You just have to wait for that cancer or something to unfold, and there you are waiting, and sure enough, it unfolds when you said it was going to unfold, Mm. and you become a victim of a belief. The question is, uh, can you change your belief? The answer is yes. How many days? That's a variable thing, but the reality is, yes, you can change your beliefs, and in fact, to gain health and to gain uh, to gain uh, uh, you know solidity on this uh, in this world and control over your life, it really requires almost all of us to go back into our programs that we requ- that we acquired, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, and rewrite those beliefs. Because if you don't, then the beliefs that you have control your life. If you re- rewrite those beliefs, then the new beliefs can control your life. And th- those are the people that that undergo those epiphanies where they just all of a sudden say, "Wow." It's not this way, and all of a sudden they change their mind and their belief, and guess what? All of a sudden, their lives are changed as well. Mm. Yeah, I've always believed that that we write our own life script, and if yes. we don't we don't like the way our life or our body is doing, then we need to rewrite it. Uh, absolutely, and, and the most important thing is, then all of a sudden the power is in you, and it's not you are not a victim anymore, and that's the that's the nature of the new biology. We bought into victim. And now we really have to buy into creator. And that's who we are because that's exactly how uh, we react and respond to ourselves inside of our bodies. Well, thanks for the call, Ron. Yeah, very interesting. Thank Uh, you. Thanks for listening. Bruce, so you think that, uh, I mean, I'm listening to you, and it almost is that we as humans probably create time and space. Well, you know, again, I, I came from that other world, that conventional training of science, which was very Newtonian in its biology. It's like the universe is a machine. It's like a clock. The gears move. Life unfolds. And that it's all programmed in this manner. And yet, as you mentioned, in part of my my evolution, uh, when I left the conventional university system, I started to read some quantum physics. And, and, and the reason for this was very simple is physics means mechanics. So that's why you can say quantum physics, quantum mechanics. Physics, mechanics are mean the same thing. Mechanics means, as it says, the mechanisms of the universe. What was very interesting is that myself and all of my colleagues were trained with a physics called Newtonian physics that looked at the world as a as a physical machine like gears engaging with each other and that if you want to understand how life works, you physically look at the gears. Yeah. Uh, once I started to read quantum mechanics, I said, these are mechanisms that I didn't understand. These are This quantum world has a complete different mechanics of how it operates. And the primary understanding of the quantum world is that the universe is, is really created by our thoughts. And yes. why that becomes important is why, oh my God, this is exactly what the biology is revealing. It's the thoughts that we carry that shape the body that we have and the life that we have. Change your thoughts, and the universe will change right in front of your face. And that becomes actually in total agreement and alignment with the mechanisms of the universe as proposed by quantum physicists. Yeah, right. That is really good. And and I, I was just thinking, I, I've been talking lately to people who say, too, there will come a time when... Um, we probably don't need vitamins anymore or herbs, even though some people say, well, they'll never prove them to work anyway. But that's another story. But, you know, eventually, if we think and make our brain, train our brain to start the healing process in our body, we can actually fill in the deficits if we know what it is all about, what we're actually lacking. 
Well, anyway, there is so much to talk about. <laughs> I'll, I'll continue with them in the next hour. We will be right back. And welcome back, folks. Welcome back to the program. It's good to have you all with us. This is a great program. And, of course, I am so grateful for all the guests who have spoken in the last six years Everybody brings so much great information to the front, and uh, it is always so helpful and practical. The practical information is great. Uh, today, we have somebody who is connecting so many dots for so many people. Dr. Bruce Lipton is my guest on the phone. Uh, we have a caller, Bruce, on the phone. Uh, caller, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Your name, and how can we help you? Well, this is the kid from Wisconsin. Hey, Daniel, good morning. Yeah, I was feeling uh, quite festy and indestructible like a boy. Uh, then read Bruce Lipton's book and found that we're both undergraduates in the 60s. He, he said that he was an ambitious undergraduate. I was more uh, like a back-to-the-land hippie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to point out that we must be similar self in the uh, big American organism. Did you notice how self and cell like a cell in an organism, they sound so similar. It's yeah. as though, here's the uh, more cosmic question. When you say cloning, warning signals kind of flash into us back to land hippies. It's saying, oh man, oh man, this guy is saying God. I'd like clarified. But there's one other question. You're quite intuitive. I have a personal question that I hinted at at first. I was feeling kind of indestructible, um, and I'm in my 62. As a biologist, I was wondering if you knew anything about cluster headaches, because I've come up with these strange cluster headaches in my right hemisphere of the brain. I took a CAT scan, and it seems that nothing physical is wrong, so intuitively, huh. we're springing this intuitive question on you. Do you have any idea why I should suddenly be plagued by an unrest of the cells in my right brain? Okay, uh, let's see, we have a couple questions, Daniel. So, uh, first of all, about the cloning thing, I, I, I really wasn't trying to play God with cloning. I wasn't trying to make anything other than the fact was I was trying to get a population of cells that were genetically equivalent so that if I study their responses, I was studying the response of a uniform population. So I am not a, a person to make uh, uh, puppy dogs and cats and people with cloning. This was just a... Uh, 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 a way of arriving at a uniform uh, population of cells so that when I studied the results, I wasn't looking at might be genetic differences because they were genetically equivalent. So uh, I'm with you. In fact, the reality is that cloning is not even a realistic possibility because um, the genes change uh, the readout uh, as you start to clone them so that uh, down the line, the cells derived from a clone will actually have different gene readouts than the original cells they started with. So uh, one of our beliefs of making clones is more or less right now a fantasy, but everyone talks about it as being real, so there's a, a belief of trying to make it real. Hmm. So let, let's clear up that. Uh, I, I'm not one of those people. Number two, about the uh, the nature of the headaches, and this is very interesting and important understanding as well. As you said, you, you did the scan business, and, and there wasn't anything really physical that you could identify. And this is what it really turns out to be most of the issues that people face. Well, we keep looking for some organic cause, like there's something wrong with the biochemistry or the physiology or the or the biology body itself. It turns out that 
less than about 5%, probably maybe only 2% of the people can actually really claim that their biology is impacted by negative chemistry and physiology, that most of us, such as the kind of thing you're reporting, the experiences we have result from the way our mind is responding to the environment and then adjusting the biology. Uh, I can't answer very specifically what it is in your particular case, but it's interesting because there's a difference between the right and the left hemispheres and what they respond to in the world. The right hemisphere is the, the part of the brain that deals with whole images, the complete picture. Uh, it deals with feelings and emotions uh, compared to the left brain, which deals with parts and pieces and, and logic and stuff like that. So that right away... It says that if you're affected on the on the right side, then it's probably something to do with how you see the whole picture and your emotions versus something to do with logic and the small details of your life. What I think is really what I've been finding in the biology is that the cells will respond to our uh, awareness even if we don't understand that awareness so that, yes, you're right, when, when the cells are, are speaking up and, 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 and talking and when they're very uncomfortable, it's not because they're physically distorted. It's because uh, there's a conflict in the belief system somewhere. So this is where Jacobus and I will probably be extending our work into it. says, well, wait, well, what beliefs or what perceptions are you running from? And are you aware of these perceptions, which uh, it turns out most of the time, no, we're not. And that's why it becomes very hard to find out when you get the headache, what was it that elicited it? Because there's not anything that sometimes stands right out in front and says, this is what my problem is. I do have one other question since I was, real interested in your book. You mentioned a little about nutrition. You're more into this belief stuff. Yes. Are you just a uh, rock and roll, a Big Mac animal that thinks you can eat anything and uh, your beliefs will conquer it? i got to hang up. I'll listen on the radio. Well, thank oh, you, Daniel. Okay, Daniel. Daniel. Daniel's last question is very relevant. And, and in fact, uh, Jacobus, you and I had actually talked over the break a little bit about that topic yes. of what, what is good for us nutrition-wise and what may be bad for us. And I said, you know what's important for people to understand is this, is that there's an increasing scale of consciousness. You could say, let's say we range a whole bunch of people, and at one end of the range there are people with essentially zero consciousness, yeah. And at the other end of the range are people with 100% consciousness. Yes. And the fact is this, that because of varying different levels of consciousness, then there are varying influences from the environment around us, meaning this, the more conscious you are, the less you are, have to be concerned about the world around you. I'll give you an example. Uh, let's take two different things. Um, let's say fire walking. Yeah. Now, we know that people walk across hot coals, yes. but we also know this. The other people get burned walking across the very same hot coals. The question is, why do some people get burned and other people can walk across the coals? Same coals. And the answer is, what are their beliefs about that? <laughs> Basically, don't walk across the coals if you think you can get burned. Uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, don't walk across the coals believing you can't get burned and then question in the middle of the walk. Well, maybe I'm wrong because at that moment you question is the moment you actually will get burned. Right. That if your belief is solid and strong and pure, you can walk across those hot coals without burning yourself. Now, here's another one, and this one's kind of, this one really uh, addresses the nutrition uh, point uh, very specifically. It goes like this. Down south, we have uh, Pentecostal Baptists uh, that work themselves up in a, in a Jesus state of, uh, 
uh, ecstasy or whatever that they get into, a, like God protects them, and yeah. uh, some of them speak tongues and stuff like that. But here's the interesting aspect of some of these people, that in testament to God protecting them, some of the, these, these Baptists get into a state where they actually play with rattlesnakes and cottonmouth, uh, obviously very poisonous vipers. Yeah. And, uh, but in their, uh, ecstatic state, uh, even if they get bitten by the snakes, they, they're, they're not affected by it. But here's the catch. Here's the one that's like, stop and think about this for a second. Some of them, to prove that God will protect them, actually drink strychnine. And what's interesting about yes. it? They have no adverse effects. Huh. And, and why, and all of a sudden you say, well, how can they do that? And the answer is because their belief is unshakable. Yes. That they are so locked into that belief. And you say, well, how can you drink a poison and not get affected? And the answer is, well, how can you walk across hot coals and not get burned? Yes. And they're both exactly the same. It's like, we're a lot more powerful than anybody has ever really tried to let on yes. that we can do amazing miracles. But it's all based on our belief system. That's so right. the more consciousness you have, the less you have to depend on outside forces and influences such as nutrition. But the le- if you are not fully conscious, then these outside influences are, have a great impact on our lives. So it says, if you're not conscious, in the sense of, you know, your levels of consciousness, if they're relatively low, then, man, nutrition becomes really important to help you. Exercise is important because this is really going to support you. But as you acquire and gain more power over your consciousness, these outside influences lose their powers. So, in a sense, uh, you can do the miracles that, that, that Jesus actually talked about, and I wasn't even brought up in that religion, but the reality is, yeah, <laughs> everything, he, he said that you could do all these things. I agree with you. But you don't yeah. believe them. That's what That's he said. right. And the issue is, can you walk across a fire? And the answer is, if you believe you can, yes. And if you don't, then don't even bother. That's right. Can, and I, I think, Bruce, to, to jump in there, I think indeed that once we create idols, whatever they are, either in, in spiritual life or in physical life, in, in popular life, cultural life, then all of a sudden we are seeing our own limitations. We, that, are, we are believing our own limitations. That's exactly right. And this is even uh, in direct alignment with the, with the world of quantum physics and quantum mechanics that mm-hmm. says that, that the observer, us, create the world that we live in. And it's like, now that sounds so absurd, because we obviously look at ourselves as victims of everything going around. My God, look, I'm a victim of the government, the food, the poisons, the air, and all that. And it turns out that's a belief system. And, and, And it's both on a spiritual and quantum physics level, the answer is exactly the same. It's the power of your belief that influences the outcome. And therefore, it's interesting. You know what? Uh, you can have someone, let's say, riddled with cancer, and then you have someone say, look, oh, macrobiotic diet is going to, you know, help you. It's going to get you back on your feet. You're going to be healthy again. And you know what's interesting about that is, well, if the person with that cancer believes the macrobiotic diet is going to help, then sure enough, it actually does. But if that person actually doesn't believe that and has really negative attitudes about a macrobiotic diet, you can feed them that apparently wonderful diet, Mm. and they'll get just as sick and die just as fast as they were going to anyway. And so it really comes down, it's incumbent upon us to recognize that we are powerful individuals, 
And and without owning that, that's where the problem comes from. Yes. And without owning the fact that, well, what beliefs do we operate from day to day? Are they beliefs that we provide, you know, that we created about our lives, or or are they beliefs that we downloaded from other people? about our lives because if we download beliefs from other people they may be limiting beliefs yes that say well you're a sickly child if that's what your parents actually thought about you as a young child that you were sickly just that intention alone that belief when propagated to the child that child will be sickly for the rest of their lives not that there was any organic reason other than that was the perception and the perception controls the biology and that's that's where all of a sudden where the uh, where the you know the rubber hits the road. That's it's like right. that's where perception manifests physicality for us. Cola, you're on the air with Bruce uh, Lipton. Thanks for joining us. Your name? How can we help you? Jacobus, this is Clint. Hey, Clint. Good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Clint. I gotta ask you two fellas a question, and I want you to give me a good straight answer. Okay? All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is about water. Okay. Yes. The state of Montana and the cities of Montana, there's 136 cities that are dumping their treated water into the Missouri River and into the Yellowstone River. And I'm wondering how anybody downstream can stay healthy when they take the water from the rivers and retreat it and drink it. And I'll hang up. And I want to hear you guys' answer to that. All right, Clint. Well, thank, thank you, you. Clint. Clint's, Clint's work actually is an extension of what we just talked about, and yes. here comes the fact. Clint's right. We've actually are destroying the environment in the front of our very faces. Yes. That the amount of drugs that uh, people have been forced to take, in a sense, by the pharmaceutical industry, which advertises excessively, uh, it turns out that most of the drugs that we take are actually eliminated from the body and urine and uh, waste matter. And now we're recognizing that they don't break down in the environment, that, in fact, all of the groundwater is polluted by drugs mm. uh, that have accumulated over time, and that these drugs have now reached levels that they're influencing the the environment and the organisms in the environment. So the question, Clint, want to say, well, how can anybody be healthy with this stuff running down? The answer is this. It all depends on the level of consciousness, as we mentioned, that uh, you can take uh, strychnine and drink it if your consciousness is fully uh, supporting you that that uh, the strychnine is, is not going to affect you. I, I, personally, I'm not doing that yet because I know my consciousness isn't that strong yet. I haven't evolved that. But the reality is this. The people downstream that are drinking the water, what's their state of consciousness? And if they're typical average Americans programmed with the beliefs that we have of being victims, then sure enough... The influence of this toxic water that is passing downstream is going to have a very negative impact on these people. And yet there are people downstream also that while other neighbors are getting sick, they're not seemingly affected by it. And the question is, well, then this is why biology never shows, like in any experiment, 100% happened this way and 0% happened that way. It's always some percent, like 80% that were affected and 20% were not. And the question is, how, how come we always have differences? It's never like 100% and 0%. And the answer is because each individual is different. Each individual has their perceptions and beliefs and attitudes about life. There are people who believe that that they are victims, that they are susceptible to the illnesses of life. And why is that important? Because if you hold that belief and you drink that toxic water, well, then that water and the belief you hold work together to create an illness or a pathology associated with it. 
and all of a sudden you say, oh, wow, the environment fed your belief. And yet the reality is, yeah, there are also people downstream who drink that water who actually walk with a complete knowledge and belief that they're, that they are living in harmony with the planet, that their lives are good, that, uh, they expect to be healthy, that this is, you know, this is a, a, a fundamental belief of that they're carrying. Why is it relevant? Well, they'll drink the same toxic water yes. and not have that effect. So all of a sudden it says, ah, what we really have to do is, A, clean up the water, and B, clean up our belief systems. That's the right. Two of those will bring the evolution that is required to this planet right now. That's right. Well, that's a great uh, point over here to uh, take a short break. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Remember a couple of months ago when they had all the floods in Louisiana? My wife and I were watching this on CNN, and I told her, I said, you watch, they're going to find the biggest, stupidest idiot they can find in the whole state, and they're going to show him walking chest deep in water down Main Street. And they did. And it was my wife's cousin, Danny. Walking chest deep in water, holding an umbrella. Just looking at her going, that's got to make you proud right there, doesn't it? <laughs> that's your bloodline walking down the street. <laughs> then it started making me worry because I realized it was my children's bloodline too. <laughs> and you mix stagnant pond water with raw sewage, you ain't getting Evian. <laughs> All right. Well, that was uh, Jeff Foxworthy. Actually, the little piece is called Faded Jeans. And since we're talking about uh, jeans here with Dr. Bruce Lipton, I thought we'd throw that one in because it actually talks about water, too. Water downstream and, uh, <laughs> and talking about bloodlines. I'm so grateful that you're here, Bruce. Uh, you have a lot of information that uh, that really resonates with me personally, and I know with a lot of listeners because everybody I feel who listens to this program, especially on a regular basis, realizes I deal with all different kinds of topics that deal with the mind, the body, and the spirit. And uh, we hear different experts talk about these things, and it is just fantastic to get this information. We have a caller on hold. Caller, thanks for joining us today. Good morning to you. You're on the air with Bruce Lipton. What is your name and how can we help you? Well, this is Dr. Gene here. Hey, Gene. Yeah. My goodness. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lipton. for. Well, Gene, thank you for calling. Well, it's unbelievable the subject here we deal with. And uh, I'm an environmental scientist, a soil microbiologist, and a lot of other things, I guess, in a sense. But uh, I was remembering, if you don't mind me making a few comments here. Go right ahead, please. Uh, Dr. Stewart uh, developed totipotency of a human of the uh, plant cell years ago. Frank Stewart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was back when I was a graduate student, and he was monumental. He never made a Nobel Prize out of it, but he probably should have. But nonetheless, uh, totipotency occurs in all cell entities out there, be they microbes, individual human cells, and we coalesce with our energy into many different organelles that, that produce this wonderful body of uh, biological machine. The aspect you're dealing with is that that everything really boils down to the thought process and it's thoughts which creates our destiny. And uh, quantum mechanics and all those things which I've been involved with since Hawkins and others have come in with their their thought processes and it's uh, the uh, the Newtons and the Einsteins that, through thought process, have given us knowledge that's unbelievable and changed the world. And that's what you're helping to do here. 
and uh, thank you for doing that. Well, I, I appreciate you reading into this because this is, uh, you know, an extension of the kind of work you're involved with environmental science. And that's where the emphasis really has to be focused because uh, we were really made in the image of the environment, and that's a biological fact. And what's interesting is now we're destroying the environment so much that foundation that provided for us is being lost. And as a result, we are tampering with our own extinction at this moment. Well, yeah, we're the, we're, environment. We're, we're the endangered species. You betcha. <laughs> and <laughs> the, the aspect of, of uh, what I what I deal with, and uh, Jacobus knows about what, what I've talked about in terms of uh, effective microorganisms that come out of Japan. And there's 80 different isolates, and we got these things that are coalesced together. Individually, they do nothing. But with 80 isolates of different types of organisms, they become synergistic. And it's a synergy that creates the energy that makes makes uh, the benefits they provide. And uh, another book I, I could reflect on is uh, James Redfield's work, and you probably read his, Celestine Prophecy, A New Spiritual Awakening is occurring in human culture who experience in their lives as a spiritual unfolding a journey in which we are led forward by mysterious coincidences and that's what makes life interesting and exciting is is once you open your mind and deal with it and let the experiences happen because that's really what creates the result is the experience mm -hmm. and we, well and we're facing some some very profound experiences right now which are changing the individuals in our collective so your synergy idea is this is exactly the momentum oh, yeah. that's driving us at this moment for yeah. a required and necessary change and it's probably pretty pretty immediate <laughs> in the future yeah. and then in my own research which I've published in the Canadian Journal of Microbiology then I incorporated different nutritional culture medias and I found that, that, uh, that the environment determines whether we have a pathogen that responds to a biocontrol agent or not. Exactly the same, yeah, same yeah. stuff. That's yeah. right. <laughs> it's, uh, for me, it was mind mill work that's, that's never been implemented. <laughs> yeah. And then other things, we deal with pesticides and all these other things, and we try to go out and, and kill something rather than try to create a healthy environment in which uh, disease doesn't show up. That's right. And, 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 and now we, we we put so many toxins, poisons, and, and and pathological things in the environment that we are the subject of 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 that focus now. Exactly. We, we're the ones exactly. that are paying the price. You also mentioned as we acquire more consciousness and awareness, then we become more empowered in controlling that in the absence of those other supporting factors. Right. But as you mentioned, we have been so dumbed down. Uh, and, and basically, you know, it's a, it's an unfortunate reality. And based on this, it says, look, we live in a world where there's a hierarchy of power. There are very powerful people and there are very unpowerful people in this world. And yet, what the biology reveals, interestingly enough, is that we're all equally powerful in our creative abilities. Absolutely. Every, everybody's equally yeah, powerful. Yes. And the question is, well, how did you get more powerful people if we're all equally powerful? And then here's the, the unfortunate and sly answer. And the answer is, it's not that people gain more power. What they did is they took away the power from other people. Yes. And that's your point. We've been down-dumbed to the extent that we find ourselves victims. And the moment you find yourself victim, somebody's going to be in that position to sell you something yeah. to take away that victimization. And so 
what we always do is give up our power and then buy it back from people. And, and what they sell us is never really as good no. as the power <laughs> that we, right. we wield so, ourselves. You know, the, world so is true. Of, the world is full of dream stealers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just and, take, take away the option. And, and, and what you need to do is just it'd be quiet and most people don't even do that yeah but gene i think dream stealers um in a way i see what you're saying but on the same token in their mind that's what they do and oh, it is oh, yeah. our mind that allows them to do it yeah and uh, don't you think so bruce well that that's what i was trying to say because i i was part of the victim uh, part of it myself I and mean, yes. i was even teaching victimization to my medical students only to have to come around and realize my goodness, that that was a belief. I bought into the belief, and buying into the belief, I became the victim. But when I said, wait a second, rewrite these beliefs, uh, when I did that, then I gained my power back. And that's where I think this, the future that we, we are confronting a very, very troublesome uh, future immediately. I mean, within the next couple of years, this is there's going to be a lot of stuff going to hit the fan here. Yes. And, and those that are going to survive, they're going to be, people are going to survive and thrive, and they're going to, people are going to be hurt by this. And the difference whether you are thriving or being hurt by this is your belief system about who you are in the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, as Gene was just talking about, if we buy the concept of victims, then, then you better start buying a lot of Band-Aids and things like that because oh, yeah. well, we're going to need it. I think the, the concept of the 80-20% rule is probably a good one in general. As a rule of thumb is that of the population out there, 20% are going to probably be okay genetically as well as consciously and belief system. That they'll overcome almost anything. Yes, and and the other eighty percent are in trouble. Well, you, as you, as you mentioned, if we can get enough people to reach a critical threshold of uh, belief, yeah, then even the other people, the passerbys in this yeah. case, will be picked up by the field. I mean, it sort of happens like uh, you, you know in those soccer matches where the whole stadium erupts into a you know fighting and yeah. all that kind of stuff like that. Well, you know, there there are generally a lot of pacifists in the middle of the group who in their day-to-day life would never be involved with anything like that. But once the crowd response occurs, <laughs> the field changes, and oh, all yeah. of a sudden they get caught up in that field yeah. and, and, and manipulated by the field. Well, what we're looking for in this case, how about a field change with more awareness and more consciousness where people all of a sudden get caught up in it and start to be uh, and start to use it, and then we will be able to evolve out of it. I, I really feel that uh, that we are on a very, very important collision here uh, in the near future, where this is going to be, the, as you mentioned, Gene, the big the big point. Are you going to be part of that twenty percent or yeah, part of the eighty? Yeah, I think I really do think we're at a fulcrum of an age of enlightenment. And going back to your comments about what came first, our consciousness, and our consciousness created the world that we now now understand and. Look. And we see the, the objects, subject-object world that's out here in its demands, including each individual. You know, you're always a subject and an object. But but the consciousness can go into a level of spirituality that, that is, transcends this reality that we live in. And then we can go somewhere else, maybe. Who knows? The other well, I, you know, are. it's actually, it's a surprise to me, G, because, uh, you know, as a, uh, before all this stuff hit me, uh, and I lived in this world as a victim, 
that's part of it. I would look at my life being out of control and stuff and just the way, oh, that's just the way life is and poor me, <laughs> you know, uh, that's my fate and that's the way life is. And But when I caught on and the cells really informed me about the nature of our perceptions and how that influences life and I changed my perceptions about life, uh, my life changed profoundly at that moment. Mm-hmm. And, and what was really critical for me is because not being a spiritual person and not believing in this stuff, I now sit here today with this very truth for me, and that is, if there is a heaven, I really feel I'm in it right now. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt you're in it now. (laughs) We created this, and and what I stopped doing is buying other people's vision of creation, started putting in my own creation, and guess what? I'm sitting here in this world that, to many people, is turned upside down, and yet, from my perception and perspective right now, it's like, I I live in this beautiful world. And it's like, well, yeah, how come I'm living in heaven and some people right next door to me think this is hell? And it's like, (laughs) same world. We're on the same page there. Right. And I, I would... People, I would hope people would hear that because it's very important uh, in that we actually can control whether we get the flu just as much as if we get toxified by drinking the strychnine. Uh, it's our belief system. And why that's important is because we are being programmed right now by forces outside of us to prepare for this flu, this avian flu. Oh, yeah. and, and that's a fear. Yes. And by you know programming that fear into consciousness, they can actually manifest no, there's no, no question. We manifest our own uh, degradation. Right. So I'm out of that because I'm not participating in the flu. Storm. No, I'm, I'm not either. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gene, thanks but, very hey, much for the call. Thank you for the time to talk, and uh, I'll, I'll look forward to I haven't got a copy of your book, but I'm certainly going to get one. I appreciate that so, very much, Gene. Uh, thank you. I hope to have more dialogue with you at some other time in the future. I, I and, so appreciate that. Thank, thank you, Jacobus. Thank you, Gene. Uh, you're, you're marvelous as usual, and, oh. and uh, you just... Thank you very much for this opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate you listening, uh, Gene. All right. right. Bye-bye. You know, as Gene is talking and as you were talking, uh, Bruce, things came to mind such as really what we believe in is indeed so important in our lives. For example, if you go to a store, you buy something, you don't know exactly what you want to buy, you know about what you want to buy, you have a good salesperson, this person is so convinced that what he is going to what he's going to explain to you is the right ticket most people will buy that because they are this person is so passionate about what they're saying you probably will buy that and you're not even looking at the price anymore because you think you are going to get the best deal you have the same with lawyers who we, who say don't tell me if you're guilty or not i don't want to know i will <laughs> defend you i will make sure that you get free because i'll spin it a certain way that the jury will believe me and so I don't even want to know what you believe. And then the third one is obviously doctors who will say you will die in three months because you have cancer. Uh, three months, maybe four if you're lucky. And people indeed put that belief system in their cells, so to say, and it suppresses the cells and the immune system goes down and most of the time they won't make it. But if you focus on the healing aspect, as you mentioned earlier, just say, you know what, that's not going to happen to me, then all of a sudden we will see that there is a healing process and that's why we talk about the medical miracles, as you mentioned, because there is indeed a healing taking place. We have another caller. Caller, thanks for joining us this morning. You're on the air with Dr. Bruce Lipton. What is your name, please, and how can we help you? Good morning, Jacobus. This is Richard. Richard! Good morning to you. And uh, 
Good morning, uh, Doctor. I sure appreciate Bruce. you being on. Okay, good morning, Bruce. Okay, Richard, a, how are you today? I'm doing fine, thank Great. you very much. And uh, good morning to Gene out there also. Um, for some of us simple creatures, we need to see pictures. And uh, Bruce, what you're what you're referring to, um, I think it could be exemplified in um, Emoto's book, The Hidden Messages in Water, uh-huh. where a simple prayer, for example, can change the construction of the crystalline forms, primarily the oxygen crystalline form, in uh, in water that might be toxic or that is filled with bacteria, uh, fungus, even virus. And um, I would recommend that along with your book that uh, people also go look at some pictures, get, uh, get emotos, the hidden messages in water. And there is a photographic... Um, demonstration of what you are speaking, how with our mind and our spirit, we can actually change the environmental constructs around us. Absolutely, Richard. In fact, it's not just what I'm saying. It's what quantum physicists uh, have been trying to get us to own this reality, because uh, the way out of the problem is actually to think differently. And and so once you start to see those kind of pictures that Emoto has in the book that you mentioned, you start to realize, yes, your thinking makes a profound difference, not just in your own personal biology, but in the community and the world that you live in. And and that why that becomes important is because uh, rather than perceiving ourselves as victims, which we've been programmed to see, mm-hmm. we're, we're creating. And, and as creators, then we must start to own some responsibility for the creation. And yet... Our programming is, well, how can you be responsible? You're a victim. Everything happens to you when the fact is no, uh, as Emoto's work uh, brought out, as you've mentioned, you are participating in this world. So if we own our responsibility, maybe we can create a better image than the mm-hmm. one that we bought right That's now. Right. That's right. Well, thank you very much, Bruce, for helping us all come to our highest selves. And uh, thank you, Jacobus, for uh, another enlightening morning. Oh, and, thank you, uh, Richard. I'll allow the phones to be open for others. So, right. Richard, thank you for for your insights. It's very important, as you said, for people to 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 see their power, and that that's a, a wonderful example you provided. Have a good life. Thank you. Thank you very thank much, you. Richard. Bye bye. Um, you know what? What about uh, what about things, Bruce? Like anxiety. We talked earlier with Daniel about his cluster headaches and um, how indeed certain headaches can be triggered by. Uh, especially, he was talking about the right side of the of the hemisphere, and you were talking about the uh, the emotions and certain feelings and seeing the whole picture, uh, where the left side is more talking about the little details and more the facts. Um, what about things like anxiety? Uh, and, and, and you know, people have a certain anxiety about something because they strongly believe that it, something is going to happen. How can they work with something like that? Well, the, 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 the problems that we face are actually when our stresses and our anxieties get the best of us. Because what that's telling, that if you were a cell, imagine you're a cell in your body, a liver cell, a muscle cell, wherever it is, and you're down there with a community of all these other cells, and over the radio every day is like, oh, this isn't going to work, oh my God, just look, oh, oh, watch out for the future, I'm, uh-oh. And, and why that's important, if you're listening to that as a cell, you're beginning to see, oh my God, this world is not very safe, and as a result, as cells, just as people, you will have a tendency to try to protect yourself. And what the new biology really reveals that is is profoundly simple and very important is that 
cells are either in a state of growth or they're in a state of protection, but they can't be in both at the same time for a simple mm. reason. Growth, by the nature of it, means you want to take things in, assimilate things into your body. That means you have to be open. Mm-hmm. Protection is you want to protect yourself, so you close yourself down. Growth mm-hmm. is open. Protection is closed. You can't be clo- you know, closed and open. And so we must be very careful because if we send messages of protection, we will close ourselves down and start to to die from from being in protection. Well, we're going to kill us. We're going to continue with that. Thank you very much for that great answer. We're going to continue with that only an hour, but we will be right back. Folks, welcome back to the program. It's good to have you with us. Uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton is my guest today on Gesundheit with Jacobus. And uh, caller, thanks for joining us this morning also. Uh, what is your name and how can we help you? Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Hi. You know, I, I find your guest fascinating. I agree with everything he says. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I, I've found that I've had tremendous amount of trouble with is in order to accept all good in your life, um, you have to come to the conclusion that there's also bad out there. And I was operating from a space that, um, yes, we all can get along, like a Pollyanna, and everyone ultimately has good in them, everyone. And what I have discovered, at least it's been my experience, is that there are certain people that do not have good in them. And they're almost like, you know, they feed off of fear like other people feed off of food. And if you expose yourself to them and... They'll drain you dry. They'll they'll destroy you. And the only way to um, not allow that to happen is to, I think, come to the conclusion that there are people that are almost like biologically, um, they feed off it. They feed off the fear, the power, the control. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think anyone, I mean, if you want to compare it to someone like Hitler, could have, you know, worked with him and can't we all get along? Mm-hmm. Good point. So, so, like, in order for me to not be susceptible to like, you know, they're almost like puppet masters, and to be able to cut the strings and not be susceptible to the evil that they do upon you and yeah, um, is I think to accept that they're evil. Right. Basically, don't give don't give them any power. Right. And I, I want to know, Bruce, what you have to say about it. One comment that I want to make is uh, indeed it depends. You know, people can do whatever they want to do. If you want to buy into it, then it is in a way your decision. And and this is what resonates with you and you feel compelled by uh, whoever the, the other person is, the messages, and you became you make it yours. And I think that is where manipulation comes in and uh, how demagogues are being born. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, and I agree with Kathy as well, is that, the, yes, sir, indeed, there are people out there that are not in a sense of, let's say, energy harmonic with us, meaning that their energy and our energy is exactly the same. As a matter of fact, that's what makes everybody slightly different. And as Kathy also brought up, it's very important to recognize this, is that those people that are, and I, I'm going to say that I didn't think they were inherently good or bad. I think that they were programmed and that they're reflecting the, the, the playing of a program. Uh, the, the issue that's very interesting is, well, 
are they going to be successful? And the only way they can be successful is if people participate with them. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a, that all of a sudden becomes where the choice is. And the mm-hmm. choice is, do, do, you know, do you find yourself uh, as a, as a, as a partner in their, in their way of life? Uh, give me an example. Uh, let's say there's a mugger and, uh, he's waiting in the shadows and there are people walking up and down the street. And the question is, does the mugger just pick anybody that's walking up and down the street? And the answer is absolutely not. The, the mugger actually reads the energy through body talk and body language and just the aura that people have. Uh, the mugger selects the person who lives in fear versus a person who does not live in fear. So if there's a bunch of people walking down the street, the mugger is actually going to find who's the weakest one. A simple reason is this, because uh, if you're going to mug somebody, you don't want to make a big fight. You just want to take the stuff. So the weakest one is the one who's going to, you know, when you confront the mugger, confronts them, the weakest one is going to say, take it, take whatever it is, take it, just, you know, leave me alone and have it. And so the difference is, well, how do you know the weak and the strong one? And the answer is, well, all of us uh, uh, have a body language and a vibration associated with us, and that predator-prey relationships are reading a vibration. So let's say a lion is looking at a pack of gazelles. Is the lion going to chase any gazelle? No. The lion's going to identify who's the weakest gazelle, because the lion's hungry. He's going to want the, who, who am I going to catch the easiest? That's exactly what it's looking for, most efficient. And so the, the lion doesn't just chase every gazelle. It can read the field around the one that's weakest uh, because the strength is weakest and and select that individual one. So as Kathy was trying to bring up, yeah, there are people out there who are like predators and some people are like prey. The ones that happen to be prey happen to be the ones that are the weakest in energy and open and susceptible to, to that predator. Other people will not have that same response to them. So the predator doesn't just pick randomly. The predator picks somebody whose energy is going to be harmonically involved with them. Why is this totally relevant? The answer is, yeah, but if you change your beliefs and your attitudes about life, then you could be today the, the victim of the predator, and tomorrow you're going to be the one that the predator is not even going to go near. And what did you do? You change how you respond to the world and who you let in to that world. And why that all of a sudden then becomes uh, an important part of our own particular lives is that uh, that is not an accident. That is a choice. That is a learning. That is a, a response to the world that we live in. If you change the way you respond to the world, then you're going to change the way people will respond to you. Yes, indeed, there are people out there who who are are not in harmony with sustaining life of the community and of us as individuals, and uh, they indeed will feed off of people. But interesting enough, you know what happens to parasites is that um, uh, it's interesting because uh, there are a lot of agriculture people, and, and when pests come in to to a field, some agriculture people they they buy parasites. For the pests, the meaning, in other words, all of a sudden I've got these uh, pests in the field that are destroying my crops. They go to a, the specialists that breed the parasites that kill the pests. And you know what's interesting? The parasites only last as long as the pests are there. Yes. When the parasites kill all the pests, yes. then the parasites disappear as well because <laughs> there's no, no more for them. That's right. And what we have to recognize is, yeah, well, we live in a world and there are parasites uh, affecting us, but they only affect the weak ones in the group. And and uh, when we change who we are, and this is where self-empowerment becomes very important, mm. when we change who we are, then we are uh, can rise above all that. And so Kathy's right. The question is, do you want to stay down mixed with this group, or do you want to 
change your attitudes and beliefs about who you are, how powerful you are in this world, because as you change them, then you will move yourself out of that particular environment. Mm. A, a society, a country in general, in order to be controlled, has to be fed certain uh, fear triggers and stuff. And isn't the only way to combat it, the media or whatever, doing the opposite of feeding um well, yeah, and Kathy, you're exactly right. And, and then, of course, everybody can look out the window and say, well, what kind of situation we're in now? And the fact is, look at the, the, the leaders of our, our world are bathing us in fear, whether it's fear of al-Qaeda, whether it's fear of avian flu, or whatever the heck it is, they perpetuate, propagate the fear. And the reason, as you brought up, very simply is this, when I am in fear, I am weaker. And when people are are weak, then the powerful person can walk in and then say, well, this is what we're going to do. And all the weak people go, okay, go ahead and do it. And so it's like, yeah, well, you know, the government had us in fear that uh, we're, we're susceptible to all the terrorists out there in the world, and they're going to come and they're going to destroy us. So what did we do? We turned over the government and said, okay, you can do whatever you want to do. And the problem is, my God, uh, they're not protecting us from the fear. They're, they're now... They're, they're now Preying on us, mm. and, and we must change. We must become more self-empowered, and this has to do with uh, the beliefs that we acquire, which are found in our conscious and our subconscious minds. And and this becomes an important topic because the mind is the interface between the world we live in and the cells that are in our body. Our mind reads that world and adjusts our biology to match what we perceive. And so why that's important is if we understand and know, and know the power of the mind in this and how it works, then we become empowered to make the differences in our lives and, and to become healthy and, and, and rise above this problem. Uh, if we don't uh, in, uh, increase our self-empowerment, then this whole system is going to go down the tubes, okay. and this is what we've been talking about, that, yes, it's, we are facing this, this issue coming in front of us right now, and, and those that are going to be successful are those that are going to understand how their thoughts are, are participating in the problem or how their thoughts are participating in the solution. Mm. Isn't a lot of it the media, though? I mean, Absolutely. you'll sit there and listen. I have disconnected from that. I don't there buy the newspaper. That is I the don't bottom line. Listen to the news, yes. and uh, and I I've disconnected from the television set. I, yeah. I mean, I, I love movies and videos and things uh -huh. that I particularly select for myself. But I stopped buying their story because their story is creating a reality that is absolutely the antithesis of our health. That their story is making us a we're victims. And then, as I said. The, the value of victims is that there's somebody who's going to sell you something if you're a victim, and we've been buying a lot of of crap, uh, and it's been killing us because we have perceived ourselves as victims. Well, thanks for the call, Kathy. Bruce, one thing that we uh, that we want to talk about, which actually helps in this in this uh, comment uh, and and the, the points that Kathy brought up, is indeed understanding what is a conscious mind and what is a subconscious mind, and and maybe you can explain that to us, please. Uh, love to because this is where the basic conflicts come from. As I said, the brain is between uh, the environment of what we see in the world and ourselves, and the brain interprets this, and the interpretations constitute what the, the activity we refer to as the mind. But now we have to recognize there are two, two minds, and this is very, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it's very important 
that we uh, understand the nature of the of the activities of these two minds because we've sort of put them together as one when they're actually two separate entities. There's a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. So let, let's give facts first. Okay. As information processing like machinery, mm-hmm. uh, I could tell you a fact that the subconscious mind is a million times more powerful as an information processor, as a computer, than is the conscious mind. So the subconscious mind is a million times more powerful, that's number one. Number two, the neuroscientists have revealed to us that the, the subconscious mind runs the show anywhere from 95 to 99% of the day, meaning that, and, and it's actually the average is closer to 99, so yeah. between 95 to 99% of the day, that the behavior we express is coming not from the conscious mind, but from the subconscious mind, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the third part is this. Well, what is the difference between the two minds? And now listen to this, because this is the part that says, oh, it goes like this. The conscious mind is the equivalent of our personal identity, our equivalent of what might be a spiritual self, our uniqueness. Uh, the conscious mind is our, our personal self uh, working with the data and creating life from that, that working relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, the subconscious mind, that's totally different. The subconscious mind is the equivalent of a tape player. It gets a program, it's a download, it's like more like a jukebox. You push this button, that song's going to play. You push it again, that song's still going to play. I don't care how many times you push it, that button, it's going to play the same song, and it's going to be the same pattern over and over again. In other words, the subconscious mind learns a pattern and becomes a pattern player. Why is this relevant? Because now we look at our lives and we say, okay, my life is being run by two minds, the conscious and the subconscious, but the conscious apparently doesn't play that big a role in day-to-day life. Uh, what is the conscious mind? Well, it's the creative mind. Mm. It's the one that looks at the world and says, I could be the best. I could. I should be uh, more successful in my job. I should be healthy. Uh, I, I am such a good worker that I should have that corner office and, and have all the raises. And how come my life doesn't seem to be working in the way that I want it to? And then, of course, when we have our great wishes and aspirations, which are our conscious mind, and life doesn't seem to work out, then we have a tendency to say, well, the universe is not giving it to me so that I'm struggling in the world. And it turns out, here's the catch, and this is the part that blew my mind, was, my God, that conscious mind is only running the show less than 5% of the time on this little miniature processor that our life is really coming from programs that are in the subconscious mind. And here's the catch. The subconscious programs are primarily downloaded into our minds from the time halfway through pregnancy when we were in utero, when we were still a fetus, uh, for, from that period through the first six years of our lives, hmm. our subconscious mind is in, a, in the equivalent of what is called a hypnagogic trance, meaning that a child up through six is actually like a tape recorder. It's downloading everything. Yes. It observes, if you're a boy, you observe your father, and you see the stimuli that affect your father's life, and you observe the behavior your father does, and what do you do? You record that. So what, when you get the same stimuli, you're going to play the same tape. When you're a boy, you watch your mother how your mother responds to your father, and what are you planning? A future partner that you're going to look for down line is going to have the characteristics of of your mother and how your mother responds to your father. You're already going to be looking for somebody that fits that pattern because that's what you've downloaded. Now, why this becomes relevant is that the conscious and the subconscious mind work in tandem. So now here's the catch for people. Listen to this. Here's the catch. 
When the conscious mind is busy, that's when the subconscious mind will carry out its its behavioral tapes. Hmm. And and why is that relevant? Because if I am thinking about the future, thinking about the past, which is where most of the time is spent in our conscious mind, thinking about where we want to go or where we've been, by that definition, it says, well, I'm not here right now in my conscious mind, which means automatically that my subconscious mind is now running the show. Now, here's the catch. When that situation arises, am I observant of that subconscious mind? The answer is absolutely not. I am oblivious to what it's doing. To get people to understand that, think about this. If you know someone and you know their parents, so let's say, for example, you know a woman and you know her mother, and you realize that, you know, they're pretty much the same behavior. Hmm. If you have the audacity to go up to this woman and say, you know, you're just like your mom, you, uh, I bet you're going to find this response. You're going to hear like, what? What are you? I am not like exactly. my mom. I am not anything like her. Yes. And the fact is, well, wait a minute. How could you, on the outside, observe that both their behaviors are the same, and she, on the inside, doesn't see that? And the answer is, ah, when the subconscious mind is playing those programs that she downloaded from her mother, it's because the conscious mind wasn't paying attention in the first place. And that's why we're oblivious. Uh-huh. So here's the interesting fact. Most of the day, 95 to 99% of the day, we're running our biology on programs that we acquired during the first six years of our lives, and we are unaware that those programs are running because we're in our conscious mind daydreaming about why our life should be more successful than it is and not recognizing that as we're even having those thoughts, we're shooting ourselves in the foot with programs that we acquired from uh, the first six years of life. Wow. And, and this becomes important because people can't understand why their life is not working the way they would like mm. and why their life is almost like a pattern that plays over and over and over again. My God, in my third divorce and I married the, the same kind of woman a third time. Mm. It's a pattern and the pattern subconscious. Very well said. I appreciate that. And we'll get right back with you in just a few. True health cannot be found in a bottle. You're listening to Gazoon Tight with Jacobus. All right, everybody, welcome back to the program. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus, indeed, and Bruce Lipton is my guest, Dr. Bruce Lipton, The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter, and Miracles. And uh, we have so much to talk about. I, the more I'm listening to Bruce Lipton, the more questions I'm starting to write up, write down. And uh, I, I really appreciate you spend all this time with us, Bruce. Well, I, I really like this opportunity because it's really a time for us to own who we really are. So. We, we can create the future rather than buying the story that we've been presented with. Absolutely. Caller, thanks for joining us also this morning. Your name, please, and how can we help you? Jim. Oh, Jim. Hi. Hi. Um, I, I was just going to, actually, I just got in early to Montana Harvest and just bought three of the books. Wonderful. Thanks for doing that. Thank you. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's just incredible what you're presenting. And I would like to ask you to uh, tell us about two things. How can we... Um, get on top of our subconscious mind and change our programming, number one. And number two, can you uh, give us a couple of testimonials of people that have changed their lives uh, doing this? 
<laughs> okay, well, number one, how do, how do we change these, these belief systems? And, and the interesting thing about this is, this is what I'm trying to say, that there was a separation between conscious and, con- and subconscious. Here, here's the fact, is that the subconscious is a tape player. And as a result of that, uh, it's equivalent of this. Let's say you want to change your subconscious beliefs, and, uh, and they're like this tape, and you put this tape in your tape player, and you push play. And you, see, you hear the program, and you don't like the program, and then you go to the tape player, and you talk to it. Like, oh, come on, tape, play something different. You know, I don't, I don't like this tape. Play something different. And the reality is, at some point you realize you're talking to the tape player, nothing's changing. It's still playing the same tape over and over again. Then you get mad and you start yelling at the tape player, and then that doesn't work. And then finally you invoke, God, please change this tape. Yes. And the reality that becomes very important is this, well, how much talking to the tape player will change the tape? Why is this relevant? Is because we have this feeling if we keep talking to ourselves, this tape is going to change. And the reality is, no. Tape doesn't change. The tape will only change if you push the record button. And that means there's a process to make change. So it's not just, okay, I became aware of that there's a better way of life, but my life still is the same as it was before. And, and, and as a matter of fact, this is personally what happened to me because when I understood how life worked, I couldn't wait to tell everybody. It's like, oh my God, you, if you understand this mechanism, you can see that you can control and have uh, you know power over your life and you can create beauty and everything on this planet. And people would listen to me at first and then they cock their head and look at me and go, you know, but Lipton, for a guy who, who knows all this stuff, your life doesn't look that great. And, and, and I realized at some point, it's like, well, you know, that was interesting because I was essentially telling them, well, do as I say, not as I do. Uh-huh. And I realized, well, that was stupid. Uh, why, if I'm so consciously aware of all this stuff, why is my life still the same? And the answer was, is because... There is no direct connection between the conscious and the subconscious. I am totally aware of the issues that concern my life, and yet my life is still having problems. So it says, well, as your important point was, how do you change that? There are actually three different ways that are very effective. Uh, I mean, basically, we always went to uh, psychology, and there are always great psychotherapists out there. As a matter of fact, in Bozeman, uh, I, I know two of them very well. That's uh, Bill and Mary Platt, and they're, and they're doing the same, this kind of work of trying to get people to understand how their subconscious minds are involved with this. Uh-huh. Uh, but there are other ways of approaching this. Uh, one of them is Buddhist mindfulness, mm-hmm. which basically says... If your conscious mind is not daydreaming and drifting off, then you are actually in the driver's seat with your hands on the wheel driving the car. You can make any decision at any time and run your life from that decision. But the moment your mind begins to drift, then you automatically go to the autopilot, which is the subconscious. So uh, Buddhist mindfulness is a way uh, of actually avoiding playing the tapes because you run the show live. It's unfortunate that it takes a lot of effort. So in a world that we live in, where we're so busy with so much data and stuff coming in our minds that we can't really do that very easily. So is there anything other than Buddhist mindfulness? Well, there's two other approaches. Uh, um, one of them is clinical hypnotherapy. And why that's relevant is that is the same process by which we downloaded the programs in the first place. For the first six years of our lives, we were in that hypnotic trance observing other people and making their behaviors our programs. And uh, and so the issue is uh, we, we were being you know programmed those six years. As a matter of fact, the, the Jesuits were actually very aware of this because they were very, very proud of the fact that they, they would say, you give us a child until it's six or seven, and it will belong to the church for the rest of its life because mm-hmm. they had already known whatever programs go into that first six years, I don't care what happens the rest of your life, those programs are the ones that are going to essentially run who you are. Wow. So uh, this is very important to recognize that, yes, we were hypnagogically programmed, 
by observing life uh, and experiencing it through the actions of others and then making their programs ours. So that, that that's a very effective way of making change. And yet there's a third way, which is actually interesting because it's a newer understanding of psychology. It involves something uh, associated with quantum mechanics and uh, aspects of what are called super learning. Uh, and these are collectively a group of modalities that we call energy psychology. Sometimes a lot of them come by letters like EMDR, EFT, TFT. There's something called body talk, avatar. I specifically in the book mentioned one called psyche. And these are processes that short-circuit the system and allow you to write programs in a matter of minutes that you can sit down uh, with one of these uh, practitioners of energy psychology and about 10 minutes later get up and your life is going to be profoundly different. And this is what I see all the time now because I get involved with workshops where, uh, for example, Psyche is being taught and people's lives are so profoundly changed in a matter of minutes that they themselves don't even know what happened. I, I love the one of the ones that I, uh, people I saw very early on in uh, being uh, um, uh, balanced with the Psyche process. Uh, she came in with an issue of um, she was afraid of heights and she had to go on an airplane and she was just you know, paralyzed in fear about this whole thing. I remember uh, Rob Williams, my friend who developed this particular modality, uh, was, uh, uh, you know, trying to talk about this, talk to this woman about how afraid of height are you? And, and asked her, for example, can you, can you stand on the edge of this coffee table, which is, uh, you know, a couple of feet off the ground? Can you stand at the edge of this? And she felt a little bit nervous and said, well, not, not really. I mean, I, I, no, I don't think I can. And so they started to get an idea of well, how afraid of height she was. They go through this balance process, which actually changes our perception without having to go back in your history. You don't, you don't need to go back in your history with your subconscious mind because your subconscious mind is always playing at the moment whatever it learned. It doesn't have a forward and a past. The, pres- the subconscious mind is always in the present. So it's interesting. It's like, well, do you need to go back to understand what your issues are? And the answer is no, because your life is a readout of your subconscious mind. So whatever is not working is a reflection that your subconscious mind has an issue with that, so you don't need to go backwards. Mm. So they start to work on the issue of this height thing. What I loved about it was that after going through a balance, which was about 10 minutes, uh, Rob then confronted this woman and said, well, okay, how do you feel about this height issue? So he said, how about standing on this coffee table right now? Well, she looked at him and like, like that was silly. This is only a couple of feet off the ground. What do you, I'm not a, this is not what I'm concerned about. So Rob said, well, oh, okay, let's go outside. I have a ladder against the house. Can you climb this ladder? She says, well, that's not that high. And, and then she got on the roof and, and he's up there with the roof saying, well, can you get to the edge? And she says, well, this isn't the problem. And what was so beautiful about it was that at some point she really said to him, well, you haven't done anything for me. And the issue was that her belief had changed so much that the concept of being afraid didn't even compute. And even in her head, 10 minutes later, the concept of being afraid of height made no sense at all. And the thing is, that's how fast a person can change their perceptions. And the interesting part, the moment the perception has changed, then all the other ramifications of beliefs associated with that perception change at that moment as well. Right. And, and it's very exciting to see this happen because this is our future. Rather than keep medicating ourselves and taking drugs and chemicals and affecting our lives through chemistry, no, no, we can go in and change the psychology. Mm. And upon doing that, then the biology will immediately adapt and change to that. Wow. Uh, that's fantastic. 
That was a great story, too. Well, I appreciate it very much, uh, you know, your book. I'm going to get into it as soon as I get home today. Thank you very much. Well, thanks well for I want to thank you because I think you're going to enjoy the book. It's easy to read, and, and it's like it's about you, and that's what's so important. And you are very powerful. Thanks again. Well, thank, thank you, you Jim. We'll only be on for about another 10 minutes. It's amazing. We already spend three hours together almost, and um, it shows you that when you talk about the mind, there is no time and space. Isn't that true, Bruce? <laughs> it disappears real fast. You know, it's a, the surprising thing about, I have to admit, what, one of the major consequences of, of changing my life from my old belief system to this more powerful new understanding is, here's the, there, there, there was a cost, and that was, Life is now going so fast, I can't even keep control of it. It's like, oh, my God, disappearing. Why? It's so beautiful, and it unfolds so quickly that uh, it, it, it just surprises me. When when life wasn't good for me, it was very slow. <laughs> I felt I every moment of it. Interesting, yes. <laughs> you know, and it is, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier during the break, I, I find out that I've been becoming much more passionate about what I do in my daily life. And I see, therefore, that I'm... I'm spending less time with people who were not uh, were not a positive influence on me, and I'm attracting more people who are of like mind. And it seems like my my days become in a way more productive. They're more busy, but it is all on a positive wave, all on a positive ride. And and uh, I I wish for everybody, especially when you read the book, your book, The Biology of Belief. I think that a lot of people will all of a sudden realize that they stand still for a moment and really start listening to where you want to go. And then once you make that step in the right direction, you're going to be amazed how things are coming your way. Yeah, and it's interesting because Kathy, the earlier caller, talked about exactly that. How how do I get away from those so-called people that are that are not in harmony with life? And the answer is, as you just said, is as you become more harmonious with life, those people don't even fit in the equation anymore. They, they disappear. Yes, and then and then you don't feel like you want to watch TV because you go like, I already know what I want, and you don't need to tell me what's going on around me because I already know what I want and I'm focused. Now, where does uh, where does instinct and intuition fit in? Well, instincts are, are programs that we were born with. So that you see, uh, it, these are like uh, genetic uh, behavioral uh, loops that are created for all humans. And so instincts are, are, are really human-required behaviors required by all humans, irregardless of culture or time in history. So, for example, uh, when a child's born, it will suckle for milk. Uh, that's an instinct. And it's very important to have that as an instinct because if we had to learn that, how many of us would have actually made it if we were slow learners? It's like, oh, oh, we got to nourish ourselves. You know, if we didn't even know that, we would die. So nature takes some things and says, well, rather than letting you learn this, we're going to build this into you. For example, some of these complexes, are, instincts are very, very complex, such as swimming. Uh, mm. Every mammal can swim the moment it's born. In fact, a baby can be born underwater, come out uh, of the birth canal, actually look like a fish. You'll see that its mouth is taking fluid in and out under the ground, under the water. But at a certain point, it will come up to the surface of the water and take its first breath naturally, oh. and then return back under the water like a dolphin, swim, and then come back up for a breath, and then go back down, and it swims like a dolphin. It's genetically inherent. So uh, we were born with large sets of instincts, and it's interesting because then, after we're born, then all the stuff we get is through our nurture, through our learning experiences, through our observing the world, 
And then we start to download a whole new set of behaviors, and those become almost like instincts in the sense that they're now playing in that subconscious mind, that jukebox, that push the button and play the tape. And why that's relevant, as I said, is then the conditions in which we are spending the first six years profoundly shape who we are, such as this. I mean, most of us have seen a, a hassled parents in a, let's say, in a department store, and they're trying to go to checkout, and one of the children is throwing a tantrum because they want this particular toy. And we've heard people say this to a child, like, well, you don't deserve that. Mm-hmm. Well, here's, here's a fact. If that child is less than six, that the child is not in in brain function and EEG activity operating in consciousness. That child is operating in a hypnogogic trance. They're they're being hypnotized so that a child that hears, you do not deserve things a number of times before it's six. That actually becomes a download program in the subconscious mind, just like a a, a jukebox. Why is it relevant? Because that same person, let's say, is now forty years old. And as I said, uh, we, we have these two minds, the conscious and the subconscious operating the show. But even at 40, the subconscious is operating at 95 to 99% of the time. So here's right. that guy at 40 years old thinking about why, why is it so hard to, to make headway in life? I try so hard, you know, and I know I'm a good person. I know I'm smart and I'm not making it. And the answer is because if that was the person who was in the store at six who heard, you do not deserve things and recognize this, even at 40, then they're 95 to 99% of their behavior is programmed by the subconscious, which has, you do not deserve. Why is it relevant? 95 to 99% of their day, their behavior has to be coherent with the program. If the program says, I do not deserve, then the behavior will actually, you know, reflect that, that whatever behavior they're expressing will, uh, you know, provide for the fact that they will not deserve, even though their conscious mind is hassling over the issue, how come I'm not getting it because I'm so good? Mm. And that's what we have to realize is that, my goodness, those programs that went in early in the show, uh, and and we know most of those programs. So who do you think you are? You're yes. not good enough. You're yes. a sickly person. You're not good at this or that. If those are downloads before six. Those are the show uh, operating programs 95 to 99% of the day. I don't care what age we are. And then the catch, of course, is, but we're oblivious <laughs> to the subconscious program, so we never see that we're shooting ourselves in the foot, and yet other people on the outside can see it more easily than we can. Always. <laughs> yeah. That's right, and that is what keeps a lot of people busy in life, to uh, to check other people out instead of focusing on themselves. Well, that, it's far easier to see other people because, as I said, uh, our own behavior happens when we're not paying attention, so we don't see it ourselves. That's right, and that is one of the things that you mentioned in the book, uh, the, the whole thing about Darwinism. It's like a con- continuous battle of the best, and we always like to compare ourselves with other people and see the, see the mistakes in others because it makes us look better because that is where we find our self-esteem and we should find it in many other ways by becoming more focused on what we actually want to do instead of trying to compare ourselves with others. Well, yeah, because that's a belief that, again, that's a fundamental belief we're all programmed with, that this world is a struggle for our survival and that we are in total competition. And it turns out, you know, that turns out to be a scientific belief that's incorrect, that we now know scientifically that evolution is based totally on cooperation, that the biosphere is one giant cooperative organism made out of all these other kinds of organisms working together. And, And it's interesting because... Human perception of that the, that evolution is based on competition has forced us into actually destroying ourselves and the environment to the extent that, uh, as a true scientific fact, 
we are now facing the sixth mass extinction on this planet, where five times before, life almost got wiped out just down to nubbins and started all over again. The five previous times have all been attributed to things like comets or asteroids hitting the Earth and changing the environment and wiping out life. The interesting one is we are now facing the sixth mass extinction, and it is clear by scientists that the cause of the sixth mass extinction is human behavior. So that we must change the way we approach life, the way we approach each other and the world and environment that we live in, because the the unthinking processes that we're using right now are destroying it from from right underneath our feet, no. and uh, and we need to wake up now. The Bruce Lipton is with us talking about the biology of belief. I highly highly recommend this book. It will change your life. It will enrich your life. Change your life for the better because it enriches your life. And we appreciate Bruce that you have written this great book, and uh, and especially since it has become part of your life. So that is well, that's, really that's what I part. said. You know, it's first. Part is going out talking about it to other people and then having them reflect on me is like, well, that's a nice talk, but you know, that was sort of like the same thing I said in the beginning where I left the religion spirit behind because people always talk the talk, but their lives didn't reflect what they talked about. And then I end up in the same place in my own science where the science revealed it and, and until I changed my life, it did not become a part of it. That's right. And I, I, sadly enough, we've come to the end of the show, folks. I highly recommend this book and read what, what Bruce writes about the human genome process of a project that obviously showed that we don't have as many genes as many scientists originally thought. So a lot of it is not based on the genes or DNA, but it is based on what we, what our environment does to us. Bruce, thank you so much for all your wisdom, and we hope to see you again. I certainly appreciated this, Jacobus, and look forward to another opportunity. All right, folks, we'll be back next week Sunday. See you then. 